I am Sarah Winchester, and welcome to Awakening Your Health Potential, the podcast. I bring you awakening conversations from experts, practitioners, and thought leaders in a wide area of health, from body, mind, and spirit topics. None of these topics are meant to replace any medical advice that you've been given, and many of them do not have any scientific validation. They are there merely to expand your mind, deepen your intuition, and encourage you to take responsibility for your health and wellness journey. Now it's time to listen, learn, and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Awakening Your Health Potential. And today I have the very interesting and clever Margaret Smith, who has a Bachelor of Science and did her honours in Bachelor of Science and then did her PhD in molecular genetics. And I've recently come to know uh, Margie through her, uh, her business, which is the... and. Ma- Margaret, you know what? I think you're going to explain this better than me. So okay. let me introduce you and, and we'll, we'll start off with maybe a, a little bit about smart DNA and then how you got into it. Okay. Well, look, thank you. Thank you for the intro. And yes, uh, I work at smart DNA and I am a molecular geneticist, which means like I have this fascination with DNA, whether it's from human beings or animals or plants, because, you know, like we're all connected. And, and DNA is certainly a, um, a really interesting piece to help us uh, understand our health, for sure. So I look forward to talking to you today about all of that. So how did you get interested in genetics? Um, well, if we take a step back, I think um, I was kind of born a scientist because I've always been really interested in you know, the world that we can see and then the world that we can't see, kind of what's what's hidden and how do we explore those hidden parts of nature and and science. And, um, and so I was always curious as a kid. And um, then uh, in my family, I had a, a sister, uh, Jennifer, and um, she was born with a neural tube defect. So she was born with spina bifida. And that really had a profound effect on me because uh, I was really – challenge as to why, you know, I would have a sibling that was born with this birth defect and I'm um, being really puzzled by it. And with my curious nature, um, I confronted my parents one evening and suggested that there might be something wrong with their DNA. Um, <laughs> how, old, how old were you? <laughs> I think I was about eight or nine and um, that, yeah, that didn't really go down particularly well. Um, But, you know, I was kind of halfway right because we've come to understand that, you know, neural tube defects, spina bifida is um, in part DNA and and risk. And then also that intersection with with nutrition. So it turned out who knew B vitamins and changes to um, what's now the methylation pathway uh, can contribute to uh, neural tube defects. So um, I wasn't popular as a child at that point, but um, I think my parents came to understand that they had produced this little being with an inquiring mind um, who may not always have the best choice of words, but was, you know, <laughs> always interested in the world around her. So, um, and then 
you know, I sort of moved into um, working in a hospital situation. I worked in anatomical pathology, so I saw these weird and wondrous uh, tissues that human beings could grow and uh, were often cut out of their bodies and ended up in pathology. So uh, that was certainly an experience. And then I really became more interested in probably more the academic side of, of science um, and I was invited to Melbourne Uni uh, for a um, an honours year. So I had a scholarship. And um, following on from that scholarship, I, I worked on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, so another genetic kind of disease, but I looked at proteins and I looked at the, the muscle tissue from those kitties. And then somehow or rather I managed to get a BSc honours, which meant that I could progress to doing a PhD and um, was lucky enough to get a scholarship of, uh, I think it was around $14,000. So the rest of my funds were made up from uh, working in private pathology every weekend. So I think that just goes to tell the tale of when you're really passionate about something, it doesn't really matter how many hours you work because you just love what you're doing. And I used to feel incredibly um, proud of going to Melbourne Uni and working on my PhD, which was on early onset Alzheimer's. And that definitely had a, a genetic basis because some genes had been discovered. And there were about um, eight to 12 families in Australia that uh, had early onset disease and they had no known genetic cause. So I found myself in front of a minor 70 freezer uh, one morning and I was very excited because I planned my experiment. I knew what I was going to do, the genes we were going to look at. And um, I was about to lift the lid and uh, Professor Colin Masters, who had given me this wonderful opportunity, said, Maggie, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm really excited. I'm about to um, take some tissue from these half-hemisphere uh, frozen pieces of brain tissue and we're going to look for those mutations now. And uh, he said, oh, great. He said, uh, just remember one thing. I said, oh, what's that? What's that? And he said, just remember that the people who donated their half hemisphere of frozen brain tissue for you to study have got living family members and they're going to want to know what you find. So what it was very levelling because it took me back to my mainstream medicine to everything has to pan out, you know, all the numbers have to match, you know, everything has to be 100% accurate. So it, it really... Uh, was a really salient point that whenever people donate tissues or blood samples there's probably other people who want to, going to want to understand what those findings are so um, that did put a serious tone um to to the work that I was doing and we did find mutations and I think the most important aspect was, yes, it was great to find mutations, but as a scientist, it gave me a far greater understanding of human beings. Mm. And it's all good and well to be in a laboratory and have a blood sample or a tissue sample and analyse it. But when you understand the impact that that information has on a family and you understand about coping mechanisms um, from family members, um, and especially if there's their partner who's got early onset Alzheimer's, often there's that feeling of helplessness and what can they actually do to contribute. And in one of the families, um, it's really fascinating, the husband actually took up genealogy and he mapped out 
the whole family tree right back to um, the UK when the um, the original founder members came to Australia. And at, coincidentally, at that same time, I'd received a sample from up in Sydney and it had the exact same, this family had the exact same mutation that I'd found in a family in Melbourne. So the geneticist that uh, was part of the team that I was working with connected those families and with this other family member. Who wow. So the they were actually, they were related? They were related, yeah. Wow. Yeah, back in time. And so they did basically just... Uh, moved along the east coast of um, Australia. So, mm. yeah, it's really, really fascinating. Genetics can connect people that have been lost to each other for a long period of time, even when you're looking um, at disease processes. So I learned a lot more about people and feelings and communication than I ever would have with without that opportunity to, to work on my PhD. So nothing ever happens you know, by yourself, it's always with a group and a team of people. So the, there were lots of other specialists involved, you know, amazing neurologists who can put together small amounts of information into a wonderful story, pathologists. I mean, we learned so much uh, from that work. Um, I think one of the original thoughts was if we look at early onset Alzheimer's, will that help us to understand late onset Alzheimer's? And um, it turns out the pathologies are quite different. Different underlying genetic mechanisms at play. Mm. Um, Even though the disease is sped up um, and some of the pathologies are the same, um, it didn't really help us understand the pathways that are involved. Help us to understand how those genes, what happens to those genes when they when they have a, a mutation in them, mm. the proteins. But yeah, you can't really compare early onset disease with with late onset disease. Mm. I mean, late onset disease, I, I think we have some determination over through diet, lifestyle, and our understanding our genetics. So nutrition's a key part to all of that. Uh, but with early onset disease, they're quite major genes that have you know fundamental flaws in those proteins yeah right well that's what one of the things that I really love about the smart DNA testing that you do is is all the nutritional things and, and exercise and weight management I've noticed with some of some of the reports that I've been through recently it's like the obesity profile fits in with a whole heap of the other profiles and and for one person I've looked at recently he's got a massive cardiovascular risk like it's come up in lots and lots of different um, areas but because he's always managed his weight none of them have actually transpired right so it's really and he's in his mm, I'd say late 70s yeah okay yeah it's quite it's quite interesting and then whereas other ones I can see with with people where their weight's gone up suddenly like these other these other things are starting to become an issue and I've also noticed that with with hormones you know where people where women are particularly whether they're going into that perimenopausal phase and postmenopausal phase it kind of then activates a whole heap of other stuff if you're not taking care of it which explains so much in terms of people's symptoms at different at, at those kind of ages that I hadn't actually put together but it's mm. kind of all mapped out in these in these um, in the smart DNA 
genomic test, which I just find unbelievable. And it just, it makes it so simple to work towards preventative health. So I guess one of, I'm totally excited about this area. And what amazes me is that I actually work in this area of preventative health, but I had no idea it really existed until kind of, I guess, middle to late last year. And so how, how new is it? How new is this technology? Well, we, we started looking at nutritional genomics in 2009, and that was really like super leading edge um, information at that point in time. And, and, I, and since 2009 up until now, I mean, we have gleaned more information about a lot of those genes. There's more research, more mm. studies being done. Yeah, it's like constant, the, constant research, I would imagine. Like it's yeah, a and, big developing area. Yeah, it is. And, and the cardiovascular area that we we look at, I mean, I don't know of any other way that you can know the information um, around if you're high cardiovascular risk, what your nutritional intake should be versus someone who's more of a neutral risk profile. And it's all based around a Mediterranean-style diet. And, and that's one of the most popular diets, right, the most studied diet on the planet. But when it comes to cardiovascular health, there are tweaks to the amounts of fats, proteins, and carbs um, that are need to be intaken based on on your genetics. So you know this is one even even the concept of how exercise fits into it. You know, it's we we have all these like general. My my um, undergraduate degree was in exercise science, and we have all these like real great information on how to keep someone healthy and what they should be doing but then you it's like the reality is there's just not a way of saying this is how everyone should exercise this is how everyone should eat um that actually works for every single person well, I think even too, like in that high cardiovascular risk group, we talk about a little bit more aerobic exercise. The, the, and the science behind that is that we can actually grow our brains via exercise, right? We actually grow BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that's all involved in memory and it's in our frontal cortex. So, you know, that high cardiovascular risk group does have associated risks with um, declining memory. Um, during aging and and it being sort of brought forward maybe into their their mid seventies that now that's not always the case because let's be clear when it comes to uh, cognitive decline or you know memory loss as we age there are many 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 genes involved in that not just one gene yeah if there was one single gene mainstream medicine pathology would use that but there isn't so the gene we look at is fantastic for cardiovascular health and nutritional genomics but it's not an accurate marker for cognitive decline so um, it's impossible to say that yes this gene's associated with this and you're definitely going to develop that disease that's just not the case so and i think gives you like the when you when you do the tests the 160 tests that you do with that genomic yep. wellness test, it gives you such a good baseline of all the different things that you can do to help support those weaknesses that I call, I call them like your health weaknesses. It's like you can find out what those weaknesses are that don't necessarily have to express. If you've inherited these genes, they don't necessarily ha- express themselves, but they often 
express themselves, and you might be able to correct me in terms of scientifically, like with some sort of trauma, like trauma to the physical system, trauma to the biochemical system, or something happens where there's there's something, and then there's a like there's a there's a a time when things then change. Yes, I mean, like a a really simple one would be, let's just presuppose we're looking at the usage of B vitamins and say, based on your genetics, your enzymes operate a lot more slowly. So they're not as effective and your need for vitamins may be uh, more demanding in terms of what your requirements are. But you suddenly decide that you'll go on a vegetarian diet. So your intake of B vitamins now diminishes dramatically, right? So you have a, an increased need for B vitamins, yet your dietary intake is very low in B vitamins. So there's a collision course now between what you actually need in a biochemical sense, yet what you've chosen to eat for maybe um, reasons that you, you, know, you, you don't want harm to come to animals, you just feel that plant-based eating is going to be totally the thing for you to do. And so there are, you know, many populations, even for religious reasons, will um, not eat eat meat. So those individuals can have chronically low levels of B vitamins. And then in terms of biochemical markers, they can have markedly elevated levels of homocysteine, which is not Homer Simpson's brother-in-law, right? It's actually homocysteine is is a byproduct of a methylation pathway, right? And and if you have adequate B vitamin intake, you basically snap apart homocysteine to methionine and you make these lovely cysteines. And enzymes love cysteines, okay? That's, you know, our body runs on these, these things. Um, so you can see that, you know, for whatever reason, people will make different uh, nutritional choices, but it's really important to understand in a nutritional sense, what your need for dietary vitamin intake may be, because it may be more than the daily recommended intake. So, you know, they're the kinds of intersections where people will make a nutritional choice, but it may be at odds with what your actual demands are for um, B vitamin intake, for example. Yeah. And and Parkinson's is like one that's come up for me recently. So, um, you know, like we know that a lot of kind of head injuries can lead to Parkinson's later, but would they have to be genetically predisposed to Parkinson's? Because the ones that I've seen that have Parkinson's, for example, I've just had someone recently and he had a terrible accident, fell down the stairs, yeah. um, you know, in his probably late 60s. And, you know, I've gone through his genomic test recently and there's, I think two or three genetic markers that says he's predisposed to low dopamine. He's right. um, sensitive to park specifically Parkinson's drugs. So it's like right. that. That it's it, it kind of blows me away. And then I've got another lady who's she's actually a young mum, but she's being possibly diagnosed with with early signs of of Parkinson's. And the symptoms have come out uh, since the whole COVID restriction when she was just so stressed trying to school three kids at home, still work, and these symptoms started coming up. So it's like this stress, the extra stress on the system kind of pushed these genes. I don't know if that's scientifically how. Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of points to what you've just made. I mean, so if we looked at uh, Parkinson's disease as a familial 
heritable disease, we'd look at genes like Parkin 1 and Parkin 2, but we're probably not talking about that. We're probably talking about so-called sporadic cases, these just incidental cases in a family Mm. where someone will have, for example, as you said, Parkinson's disease, and they, they may be as part, it may be you know, part of aging. It's it's not it's not normal aging, but um, you're right. Then when we look at nutritional genomics, I mean, we know for people with Parkinson's disease, dopamine, low levels of dopamine is an issue. Low levels of glutathione is another issue for those individuals. So then you can start to look at the pathways and what support is necessary. It may not be that uh, the genetic predispositions to low levels of dopamine is a trigger for developing Parkinson's. But certainly um, you talked about head trauma um, as being, you know, another area that um, is associated with development of Parkinson's disease. So we're not necessarily looking at um, all of the pathways involved, but from a nutritional sense, what we're looking at is what we can actually do to support um, those those people with um, these neurodegenerative type diseases and disorders, and and I think you know nutritional supports are really very important um, in those instances. Yeah, for sure. So, have you done a whole heap of study in nutrition as well? Um, How did that all come into it for you? And actually, I, you know what we haven't really defined for for listeners is what nutritional genomics is. So maybe you could start with that. That's right. We've launched straight in. So nutritional genomics is really understanding where nutrition meets uh, your um, your genome, your DNA. So we're looking more at personalization for people. So we've talked about um, about B vitamins, and I think one of the the uh, most known genes is NTHFR. Most people have have heard about NTHFR and the need for B vitamins. And really that's just the starting point because in that entire pathway, um, we're looking at other genes associated with a need for not only whether it's folate or a methylated folate, but vitamin B6, B12. I mean, for some people, um, more need for vitamin B2 based on, on genetics. So no, I don't have um, qualifications in nutrition. I, I have done some studies in nutrition, but I don't have any qualifications. But as a, as a geneticist, um, basically my area of interest is, is looking at genes and understanding is their enzyme faster, slower, how is it affected and how does that interact with, with nutrition. So there's a lot of keeping up to date with literature and studies um, and also understanding where that fits um, with pathology. So for example, let's say your MTHFR enzyme is very sloppy and this is the first place or it's, it's slow. It, this is the first place where we metabolize B vitamins, whether we get that market from protein, for example. Um, or you might be supplementing because you feel better when you supplement. You may not know what your MTHFR enzyme is, but think about it, you know, as an enzyme that's there to basically do one thing, add this little methyl group, okay? It's the first step in the process. But if your enzyme is slow, it's, 
it's going to take a long time to and do I think that of job. it like a cog. So it's like yeah, a, a cog. So it's grinding it's away. It's just going really, really slowly. And other people might be whizzing around, as you've said, but this is going really, really slowly. So one thing that um, individuals may do is take a methylated folate. So we're saying to MTHFR, okay, you're not really doing the job as fast as we would like. We're going to step in behind you and add that methyl group to folate. So you can actually tick away through the rest of the, the pathway. Now, the thing about that is if you're going to supplement and do that, if you're going to actively supplement every day, understand that the biochemical consequence of that is that you are going to push levels of homocysteine down. Now, homocysteine is a chemical that's associated with if it's elevated, cardiovascular health, issues with cardiovascular health, and also um, brain function as well. So you don't want to have these elevated levels of homocysteine. Other reasons for elevated levels of homocysteine are people who drink too much alcohol, other medications, um, and primarily um, dietary choices that don't contain enough B vitamins. So, for example, um, in Asia where I've done a lot of work, um, I've seen homocysteine readings of 30, okay? Now, the, the, the normal range is between 8 to 10, mm. okay? 6 to 8 is really good DNA repair. If, you, if your homocysteine reading is between 6 and 8, that's fantastic. So, so just for the listeners, so lower homocysteine is better because it, 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 homocysteine interferes with you be, being able to repair your cells, that's right. That's right. And it's a barometer. It's a marker for, for DNA repair. So between six and eight is really fantastic DNA repair. But you don't want to be taking a methylating agent every day just because your MTHFR enzyme is a little bit faulty because all you're going to do is drive homocysteine lower and lower over time. Remember, we want to keep it between six and eight. So it might be that you methylate every third day may not be every day and if you use homocysteine as a marker for what's actually happening in your pathway that's a that's a great way to keep track and make sure that you're not pushing homocysteine too low if you push homocysteine too low then you need to look at glutathione support to drive the pathway back in the other direction so kind of think about it as you know your dna changes as being wonderful markers for what's wrong but if you want to actually understand the biochemistry or pathology of what's going on then you know there are other tests that you can actually do to see what's happening in real time for a person mm -hmm. but I think it's really critical to understand in the first instance what your vulnerabilities are and without that information you wouldn't even know for cardiovascular disease what kind of diet to go on in terms of your macronutrients, right? So totally, and even with the MTHFR um, gene test, which you can kind of get done by itself, and a lot of people mm. I find do know about that. But it's like you know when people say, "Oh, why do I have to? Why does this nutrient show up that I need to?" Because I use a lot of muscle testing. Why? Why do I? Why does it? Why is it always this? You know? Yep. And having a look at their genetics, it then reveals like how and why. So it's like looking at those things that 
you're seeing that the body needs and the body needs and the body and it can't get enough out of its food over three periods of time. Right. If you actually look deeper, it's like, ah, that's actually why. Mm. Mm, exactly, exactly. And and there are other parts to the pathway. I mean, we're looking at uh, genes and proteins that are associated specifically in a nutritional sense mm. around the need for, for B vitamins and, and methylation. Mm. But, but if you looked at the entire pathway, there's hundreds and even thousands of other genes involved. But when you look at it in a nutritional sense, it's kind of a summary version of these are the key points that you need to know. Yeah. Absolutely. So the other the other company that uh, a lot of people have heard of is Twenty Three and Me. Right. What's the What's the difference between the way you guys work, actually, and even people? I don't even think people understand even even ancestry. Right. I mean, it's not nutritional at all. But maybe you can kind of define what what the difference between those sort of what people are looking for and what they get out of it. Yeah, okay. So if we look at the basically there's a fundamental difference in terms of technology. So um, Ancestry and 23andMe use these very large arrays. So you get um, hundreds of thousands of pieces of information on your DNA, whereas our tests we target specifically uh, to nutritional genomics um, and something that we can do something about in terms of, um, you know, nutrition, um, your lifestyle. Um, and and, um, and exercise. So uh, for the other companies, they may not have the, the SNPs that we look at. In fact, I know they don't. We look at some copy number variations. So did you get this gene from mum and dad or didn't you? So sometimes you don't, you don't get, uh, you don't inherit some mm-hmm. genes from your parents. Yeah. So those glutathione enzymes, for example. So you won't get that information from 23andMe or or ancestry um and then with those large arrays they're unvalidated so the data may not necessarily be 100 percent accurate whereas our test is validated we've used something called genome in a bottle and where the genotype is known and when you run your assay you know the genotypes that you should expect to see so we've we've validated our test so that's why, you know, some people, uh, like someone I was talking to recently was saying, oh, you know, he's being told by doctors that they're a bit of a gimmick. And, mm. and I'm like, you know, definitely in terms of gimmick, I can say that smart DNA is just, you know, the information there is totally usable to improve your health. Where So would, that would fit in. If it's not validated, then... The arrays are not validated. Yeah. So... Um, they're not exactly um, error-free. Yeah. Um, ancestry, basic, yeah, ancestry basically is looking at um, mutations that are found or DNA changes that are um, found in countries. So they're called founder mutations. So if you, oh, right. okay. if you harbour those founder mutations, that's how they can kind of work out whether you – you know, you've got Irish ancestry or a bit of Scandinavian or... Okay, okay. So you um, don't get the, the detail of in terms of how to use it for your health. It's more to do with, like, what your background is. Yeah, it, it is, although there is other information in there. It's just that with our testing, we've targeted specific genes and gene changes, which may not be on those arrays. Yeah. 
So, um, and with some of the earlier rays, the information can be quite confusing because DNA has two strands, a forward and reverse strand. So it was never clear on those earlier rays whether they targeted the forward strand or the reverse strand on the DNA. So that affected the interpretation. So basically what you end up with, data on a ray, you can upload to another party, another party or company's um, program, and you can generate a report. But just remember, if there's an error made in the array data, that's going to be compounded in the report that you actually mm. receive. So there's no real way to check that data. So there have been differences, and we have found that the array was actually the, the point of error. Yeah, right. So... Uh, you know, I think using unvalidated information to uh, provide a treatment plan for a patient is not really um, a very good way to go, in my it's opinion. Not relevant either. No. So, yeah, yeah you've got to have um, information that you can do something about to actually yeah. help a patient. And also, in looking at a report, I always like to think about the good things in a person's report. Areas where their health is. Um, not likely to be impacted, um, and then also the areas where some support um, is needed. Because mm. prevention is everything. I mean, basically where I've come from in mainstream medicine, um, we don't really work in that area of prevention. We wait until there's a disease process. And then the way that disease process is looked at is very much often tissue-specific. So if there's a problem with your kidneys, well, you're off to the kidney department, the renal ward, you know, if it's heart, it's there. And so sometimes I think that we miss a lot because we don't really see the person in a holistic way. We don't bring everything together. Yeah, so, totally agree. It's, it's, and that's what I really love about this because, again, so many of those genetic markers that you're looking at have like a broad area of health that it would be affecting. So, you know, not only are you looking just at the genetic marker, but also like looking at how that's going to impact the system and how you can support it to prevent all of those areas. Yeah, if you just think about methylation, I mean, when you say that word, there's been now 100 million methylation things happen in my cells and my body just when I said that. Because it's happening all the time. Yeah. Like it's, just, it's not like there's one thing. That, just say that again. Yeah it's, like, it's, yeah, it's going on 100 million times in my cells right now as we speak. Like, you know, and so it's not something that we cognitively have control over, right? It's something that our body does for us. Yeah. So in knowing that information, we can support it mm. um, because we want, if there's one thing that we want to be faithful in our lives to us, it's our DNA, right? <laughs> it may not happen in relationships, but you want your DNA to make faithful copies of itself. Yeah, and, and the good ones and not, not express the, the not-so-good ones. That's right. That's exactly right. We want, we want that to happen. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really important piece to understand that, you know, those faithful copies. And, you know, as we age, you've got to understand um, we've got little spell checkers that run around checking those A's, C's, T's and G's on our DNA, um, and they run around and they make sure we haven't made a spelling mistake because, if you make a spelling mistake, you might make a protein that uh, is not going to be um, helpful to you as you age. So you really want to support your body uh, as you're aging in terms of 
um, nutrition because that's certainly something we can control. Mm. And then obviously things that also protect the cells are like reducing chemical exposure and heavy metals and right that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, I mentioned those GST enzymes uh, just before, those glutathione enzymes, GSTT1 and GSTM1. Now, you either get a copy of those from mum and dad or you don't. And, like, they are major detoxification enzymes. They're kind of like magnets for um, any um, breakdown products from pharmaceutical drugs uh, through to chemical, chemical exposures. I mean, even just... In kitchens at home, there's plenty of chemicals that sit around there that um, we run our hands through, we breathe in. Yeah. So if you don't have those glutathione enzymes, um, then when you set up detox, you know, a detox is happening um, by the liver, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have that capacity. So you have to use this non-enzymatic pathway, which is really slow. Even think about mercury exposure. I know that this is a little bit contentious, but if you've got amalgam fillings and you don't have those glutathione enzymes, then there have been studies showing that, you know, you can end up with mercury toxicity. Yeah. So, you know, next time you get a filling, my advice would be try and not get, you know, mercury oh, amalgams. Oh, I know, I know that that... Yes, as well. It's so yeah. unnecessary. Yeah. And, and, you know, even um, children on the spectrum, one of the things they found was that um, that often those glutathione enzymes are deleted. They're not present. So their ability to detoxify um, is reduced as well. Mm. So there's a whole lot of biomedical evidence for nutritional um, understanding as well for those kitties. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, like detox is a major major area in the report and as I say you know we are one of the few companies that actually look at the copy number variations mm. of those glutathione enzymes and just to give you some idea 50% of the Caucasian population has GSTM1 deleted and around 80 to 90% of the Asian population has GSTT1 deleted so those two yeah. enzymes so basically, when you have them deleted, you don't detox as well. So the so it's glutathione is one related to glutathione. Yeah, glutathione, yeah, glutathione related enzymes. So that's when you need to look at nutritional support. I mean, um, vegetables that contain sulfurethanes, you know, your broccoli, cruciferous vegetables, three to four times a week mm. um, is hugely important when you you don't have those enzymes present. Yeah, and just out of interest, Japan is a country where um, large percentage of the population have both of those enzymes deleted. Hmm. So you know, and uh, Australia is increased risk for GSTM one being deleted hmm. um, as part of the Caucasian population. Even though we're a bit of a melting pot now, but yeah. um, you know, when you start looking at those enzymes. Um, the other issue around them is if you've deleted in those enzymes, then your need for vitamin C um, can be increased above the daily recommended intake. And they also found in people that have both those enzymes deleted, increased cancer risks. Mm. So we know vitamin C is anti-cancer, right? So, you know, please make sure when you have those enzymes deleted that you're at least meeting your daily recommended intake for vitamin C. Mm. So, you know, we're not, um, you know, everyone looks at, you know, like, for example, um, 
the enzymes for vitamin vitamin A and, you know, eat your carrots. But, you know, we're actually talking about beta carotene. We're actually talking about the bioactive chemical components in these foods that interact with our DNA. You know, um, omega-3s can basically um, reduce inflammation um, in one of the um, anti or the one of the inflammatory markers called TNF alpha, it actually directly interacts with the driving part of that gene, the part that controls that gene, and can dial down inflammation. So, you know, it's not. It's like so specific. It's like if you yep. know where that snip is, you can just come in and and yep. it. Yeah. So it's you know. People go, oh, you know, it's food, but it's actually we're actually driving down to the bioactive parts of yeah. food and how yeah. that interacts with with your DNA. Yeah, and then I guess it just enhances that old saying of "you are what you eat." Yeah, and 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 I think now with our gut microbiome, not only are we what we eat, but we're also what we absorb through yeah. our other our other genome, those bacteria that are are sitting there as well. Mm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're now going to start seeing this burgeoning of connection between our gut microbiome and our innate DNA. Wow. It's kind of like, who's in charge of us? Is it us and what we eat or is it that bacteria sitting in our gut, you know, (laughs) that are controlling us? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like when when some, I often get, you know, kids in and mum's going, oh, you know, they're just, their behaviour just gone off the chart and I find a parasite and I'm like, is it like your child's been taken over? <laughs> They've got a parasite, you know. It's like yeah. they get taken over. Yeah. And you can see, and then their behaviour just drops as, straight away. So, yeah, it's quite yeah. fascinating the way the gut the gut influences. So, yeah, well, I mean, there's so many access from the gut to our lungs, you know, um, and even in this time of COVID, um, just our you know, lung capacity and then also what's happening in our gut microbiome because that's where our immune system sits. Yeah. So, you know, there's the gut-brain axis. I mean, there's the gut-skin axis. I mean, you know, I think if we can just come to terms with and accept that everything is connected. Yes, absolutely. Start with ourselves. Yeah. And think about that and what's happening in our bodies and then think about what we think not only what we eat, but what we think, what we feel, our interactions, um, and just look to nature yeah. as well. Everything is connected, 100% everything is connected. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really beautiful way to round off. But I do want to ask you where, you know, um, what your highest kind of vision for this sort of knowledge for people would be, like where you see that, it going. That we, that when from the moment we're born we can have this information about ourselves, yeah. you know, like fundamentally that would be great. If when I, there's a newborn, we, we get, we look for um, inherited disorders of metabolism. There's a few of those that look for when, when children are born. But if we looked at nutritional genomics in terms of what's a path for this individual for the rest of their lives in terms of nutrition and, and preventative health, that, that it would be there, that we would include the gut microbiome um, in that, in that data set as well and map and follow individuals. Mm. Um, Because remember they inherit, you know, will you inherit your gut microbiome from your mum? So, you know, and then there's antibiotics and so on. There's other influences on our gut microbiome, but just remember, 
50% of what we eat determines what our microbiome looks like. So for the future, I'd like to see this just be available for everybody to have access to. Yeah. So that, you know, everyone gets an opportunity to age um, in in a healthy way and and be healthier for longer. It's one thing wanting to have a longer life expectancy, but it needs to be a healthy one. And I think that's that's definitely where we need to head. Yeah. Wonderful. Can you um, let people know where they can find you and about your book as well? I've got a, for, for those watching on YouTube, I've got a copy of the book right here. Oh, right. So I wrote a book called Gene Genius. So you basically get to be the genius and understand about your DNA and there's a whole lot of fun things in there. So you can and remember the names of genes. Case studies and, um, you know, like easy to put into context for people yep. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you can find us um, at www.smartdna.com.au um, and, book of our website I don't know if that's where you can certainly buy a copy of the book as well so yeah and do you have a list of practitioners that um we do if um someone wants a a test and they live in a particular state or region that we will try and find a a practitioner for them for sure yeah absolutely yeah great and it's so easy just so I can you know it's so easy they send out the little testing kit in the mail you send it back and it it get it get gets looked at and it's really Really, really simple. It's fantastic. It sure is. It sure is. And it's a great way to get a roadmap for for health moving forward for sure. Yeah, and proper proper long-term preventative health like on another Mm. level. So, yeah, I I think it's amazing. I think that, you know, more practitioners should know about this, that this is available, especially people looking at kind of long-term health. um, And, yeah, I reckon making it available. I mean, I've kind of done all my family and I'm now <laughs> looking to do like that like my mum my dad and myself my partner and now I'm looking to do the kids so okay you know, it's like if I can get that information with two five I've got two five six seventeen eighteen the 17 18 year olds I think they'll be the last one to get done because I, I feel like they're probably in the phase of life where they don't really care anyway yeah. <laughs> okay. and I don't have, I don't have the control anymore so if okay. they want to do it I'll do it with them but I feel like the little ones, I'm still in control of their nutrition and, and how to support yep. them. So I think it's super important too. So, Well, let's hope that everyone's compatible in the kitchen, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it can't be too different if, you know, we're kind of mostly connected. Mostly connected. That's right. Oh, I wasn't casting any aspersions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for our chat today, Margie, and hopefully people have learnt a lot and, and um, just opened their mind a bit on what, what is available for looking at, at health in, on a very deep level. So, yeah, it's been a wonderful chat. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me along. Thank you. Pleasure. See you later. See you. If you loved or learnt something in this episode, share it and don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you next week's Awakening Conversation. Have a wonderful week.